Do you ever wonder what's going on in the minds of the human resources folks when you're negotiating your salary? Denise Liebetrau has been on both sides of the HR desk, and she's spent the past several years coaching job candidates about how to recognize their true value and ask for appropriate compensation. In this episode of Hack the Process, Denise will tell us why she tells her clients that salary negotiation starts with your first job interview, what steps she took as an employee that made it easier for her to transition into independent consulting, and how to read through the detailed requirements in a job description to recognize whether or not you should consider applying. Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Today, I'm speaking with Denise Liebetrau, and she is the founder and CEO of Prosper Consulting. Denise, how are you doing today? I'm great, David. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming on. I'm curious, one of the things that attracted me to your profile in the first place was you were talking a little bit about salary negotiations. And I know that's something that a lot of people are going to be interested in. But let's start off with, tell me about Prosper and how, how you started it. Yeah. So my background is in HR and human resources, and I worked for large companies, Fortune 500 firms in mining and telecommunications, financial services, consulting. And in that space, my expertise is in compensation and designing pay programs for businesses to attract and keep the right talent in place to get their hit their business goals. And one of the things I saw consistently was that people were not negotiating in a way that was powerful. Some people would, but not everybody. And so when I started my business three years ago and left the corporate world and made that leap into being an entrepreneur, I decided, you know what, I'm still going to do HR consulting work, but I also want to do coaching. And I want to teach people how to negotiate and get paid what they're worth and have careers that are aligned to what they value. Instead of being so focused on driving results for the business, I think there can be an exchange between employees and employers that is more balanced. And I like to think of that as a prosperity exchange. That's wonderful. I'm, I think there are people who don't even know what a powerful negotiating position looks like. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So let's say you're in a situation where you've conducted a job search and it's been successful and you've got an offer on the table. So what do you do with that offer? How do you maximize it? And I always tell people, you know, happy to step in at that point, but you actually start negotiating your offer when you start interacting with the company, not at the point in time that you get the offer. Because at the point in time that you start interacting with the company, that's when you're demonstrating the value you can deliver, right? So it's how do you tell the story of the value you deliver, but how do you tell that story with the words and the phrases that the company will appreciate? What success metrics do they have? Do they care about revenue? Do they care about EBITDA? Do they care about cash flow? There are certain terms and languages that in the language and business that companies will say over and over again. And when you can hack that and figure that out and then tell your story of the value create within that, that's where your power comes in. And then 
it's also recognizing there's lots of free data sources online these days where you can do the research, figure out what you're worth. And for anybody who's listening, if you want a list of free data sources to figure out what you are worth in your job, let me know. Just send me an email. You can find me at www.prosperconsultingllc.com and you'll find my email address. Just ask for that list and I'll send it to you. We will definitely be including that link in the show notes, by the way. Awesome. Great. And do that. So that's what your job's worth. And then your stories tell them where in that range should you be paid? Should you be paid at the lower end, the middle or the top end of the range? So what I teach my coaching clients is how do you negotiate, but how do you tell your story when you ask for more, whether it's more money or more paid time off or whatever your more is, but how do you tell your story in a powerful way so that you get an easy yes from HR and the business leaders? Now, you hit on one of my hot button topics, which is that when you start the interview process, you're interviewing that company as much as they're interviewing you. You are. And too many times people are a little bit reticent to sometimes ask some powerful questions. And so I always talk to my clients about, you know, they shouldn't be just filling the time with their questions. They should be allowing you plenty of time to ask your questions, right? because you need to be able to assess and ferret out what their culture is like. Is this going to be a culture where you can perform at your highest and perform really well? Or is this a culture that isn't going to be that great, right? You also have to be self-aware and good at recognizing hesitation and certain words in the negotiation process to know whether or not you've got some room to negotiate. So I teach my clients those kinds of things. Oh, that's interesting. So like little linguistic tips and things to look for. Yeah. So let's say, let's say you ask for the salary range for a position and they say, typically the salary range is between X and Y. Well, they said typically. So when they use words like typically or usually or most of the time, what those are, are those are little outs. So if you give them a better story than the normal about what you can deliver for them that matters, then they may be willing to go forward to ask for an exception and go beyond their norm. So you have to listen for little verbal cues like that in order to make sure that you take advantage of them. So that's a clue that they're giving you that there may be a little bit more flexibility in what they're saying. Exactly. And because I'm an HR insider and I was behind the scenes saying yes or no to those kinds of offers, or if somebody wants a promotion, let's say, or they want to move from one part of the company to another. I know what it took to make those kinds of things happen because I was on the inside in HR, helping navigate and work with business leaders on those types of transitions. And so I sometimes call myself an HR whisperer. And so I know how to whisper in your ear about how to set those conversations up and how to have those conversations to get to the other side where you'll be happy. Now, that brings up an interesting topic, because I think a lot of people think about job salary negotiation as something that you do when you're entering a company, but it's also critical in the entrepreneurial situations. It is. It is. Certainly within a company, if you are having great success and you're getting kudos and getting good performance reviews and you're getting good indicators from your leadership that you're delivering the right things, that is a wonderful time to ask for more money. And when I first started my business, I did a spreadsheet because I'm a little bit of a spreadsheet junkie. And I said, what if you ask for more money during the course of your career, whether it's a job change or internally beyond the normal merit increase every year, right? And in the US, that normal merit increase budget is around two, 3%. If you ask for more money periodically throughout your career, you will get half a million to a million more dollars over the course of your career from the time your 20s into your 60s. And that's tremendous, right? And it's it's a tremendous amount of money, but a lot of people don't ask. They're just really excited. Well, gosh, I got a job. I don't know that I need to ask for more. Yes, you do. If you got the job offer, they want you. 
right? If you got the promotion and it's a very modest pay increase, ask for more. It's okay to ask for more. You might not get it 100% of the time, but if you don't ask, you're certainly not going to get it. Absolutely. It's amazing how quickly those numbers add up. And money isn't the only thing you can ask for. Exactly. You can ask for things like more paid time off. You can negotiate things like where you work. Right now, we're dealing with the coronavirus. and Most of us or many of us are working from home, but some companies aren't so willing to do that. So some companies, you have to negotiate for that. You can negotiate different start and stop times. You can negotiate for professional development budget in order to get a certification or keep a certification current. You can ask for different things as it relates to relocation. So there's a lot of different components that you can ask for that are cash and non-cash based. Sign-on bonuses. But I, tr- I teach how people how do you do that in a way so you don't come across as entitled or overly aggressive. It's assertive and it's appropriate. Yeah, so that you can feel good that you didn't leave anything on the table. I can see you're really passionate about this. How did you get involved with the the HR thing in the first place? So I'm going to date myself. I'm in my 50s. And the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, was passed when I was in graduate school. And so I started helping employers write job descriptions that included the essential job functions. This is a phrase from that act. And then from there, started helping do the research with employers on what do you pay people doing certain types of work. And it just went on from there. It's interesting. So you were you were driven by the politics of the day. I was driven by the fact that I wanted to earn some money and somebody was offering an internship at a local hospital when I was in grad school and teaching people how to write job descriptions. And I said, yes. I think that's one of the things that I always tell people is you often don't realize you'll agonize over these big decisions, but it's the smallest of decisions that you'll make that you'll look backward and go, oh my gosh, if I wouldn't have said yes to that, my career wouldn't have gone here. Or my relationship wouldn't have gone here. And so I said yes to an internship opportunity that came my way. And from that internship, I became qualified because I had a skill set to step into a professional position, writing job descriptions and doing research on compensation for employers. And it went on from there. And if I wouldn't have said yes to that internship, I'm sure my career would have gone in a different direction. At that time, was the term internship what it is today? Was it a paid internship? This one was not, but there were certainly paid internships in those days as well. But I said yes, because it was only like eight to 10 hours a week. And I thought I can show up and do something for eight to 10 hours a week. That's not that big of a deal. And I'm very glad I did. I said yes to doing something for free because I wanted to prove what I could deliver and gain some skill set, a skill set. And that was a smart thing to have done. Yeah. When do you recommend people consider that as, as a part of their career search? Doing something for free? Yes. Anytime. Certainly, if you are in a capacity where you want to demonstrate that you can do something and somebody's a little hesitant, you can say, how about I work for you for X number of hours for free? And if you like what I deliver, then we can talk about what you'd be willing to pay me for what I'm delivering. So it's a good way, you know, if you've got somebody who is hesitant and you really are stretching yourself to do something different, you need to prove yourself. Now, I would also say I have a philosophy of helping people get paid with their worth. So I'm reluctant to encourage people to do things for free. I think people should recognize the value and at least pay you a minimum wage for helping folks out. But certainly if it's a if it's a stretch and it's something that you need something tangible. But we also have things today that we didn't have back in the 80s when I did that free internship. We have things like freelancer and Upwork in different ways where you can promote yourself online in different forums where you can get experience. So we have different avenues today where you can gain experience and things that maybe you don't have um, a whole lot of background in that can make you qualified. So it's a little different now. 
I imagine volunteerism is also an opportunity to do things like that. It is. And I will often tell people, you know, if if you want to work for a company and you know their senior leadership, maybe in their bios on the website, they have that they're on the board of directors for a certain nonprofit or they have something in there about what they're passionate about. If you can find out where those leaders are hanging out and serving their communities and you show up as a volunteer or a participant in one of their events, sometimes your paths will cross and you can make an impression that then can lead to something else. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of ways to kind of get your foot in the door if you're creative. And that ties right back into the importance of doing your research when you're interviewing. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, the research. I uh, will tell people, you know, it's one thing to read a, a company website, but I think you have to become a little bit like a private investigator when you're looking for the companies that are really great to work for. And you need to spend time with people who are currently working at those companies to get a sense of what their workplace culture is like, how they make decisions and how they define great performance so that you can suss out whether or not you would be a good fit. So how did you make the transition into coaching? Because working inside of a company, it's an opportunity to coach people internally, I suppose. Yeah. And certainly from an HR perspective, I found myself coaching people throughout my career. But I transitioned into coaching because I kept having people ask for my advice. And frankly, I didn't want to give advice away for free. And so (laughs) I said, you know, first 15 minutes free and I still offer that. So if anybody wants to talk to me for 15 minutes, we can have a conversation for 15. But after that, there's a charge. So I certainly help employers these days and help them dial in their HR and pay programs. But I love working with individuals and helping them. And, And I typically work with people who are director level and above. But every once in a while, I'll find somebody who I think is uh, high potential and has got some real opportunity to make some things happen in their career. And I'll say yes to working people below that level. That makes sense. And probably from the standpoint of running your business, that's where the that's where the greatest compensation opportunities are. It is. And those are the people who have got who've got the years of experience and the education and the background where they've got something to trade. Right. I do sometimes do workshops and do online webinars for people at a very cheap price or for free sometimes for folks who are just getting out of school or people who are perhaps not at that point in their career. So I do give value to those types of folks periodically so that I can try to help them and give them some tips and tricks. But yeah, typically I like to find folks that have something of value that they can trade for a good paycheck and help them maximize it. Well, it can be challenging building up a client base around that sort of thing, especially when people are getting jobs and then moving on. I'm really curious how you do that. So my client base is gained through referrals. So obviously, if I work with somebody and and they like me, they'll refer people to me. But I also do a lot of speaking. So I do speaking online through webinars, and I do a lot of speaking events. I target different audiences. I certainly target leaders and and people in business um, as it relates to my HR consulting business. I talk about myself in the sense that I am a people performance consultant. So I help people perform better because businesses are simply made up of people and they need to perform well. And then I'm a people performance consultant to individuals as well as to businesses. So working with individuals and executives as well. You've sort of built up a speaking career for yourself as well. And that can be a challenging thing, especially for folks who are used to working behind the scenes. Yes. And I very much worked behind the scenes. I'm a natural introvert. So getting up on a stage and talking to 10 people or hundreds of people was not something that was natural for me. And I would tell you, if you are one of those folks, position yourself in situations where you get comfortable with being uncomfortable. The ability to present is an incredible skill set to build, and it will help you earn more. It'll help you get promotions. 
you'll also gain confidence as you do it more and more. And so I pushed myself by being part of a local professional association and became a board member, then ultimately became president and had to get up and speak in front of a group every month, even though it was for a little while. And now I speak three, four times a month to different audiences, everything from small workshops to conferences in order to get my message out. Was that a professional organization people might be familiar with? If you are in the Denver, Colorado area, you might be familiar with the Rocky Mountain Total Rewards Association. I was on their board for a number of years. But yeah, there's lots of opportunities to nudge yourself into situations that allow you to gain skills that are outside of your workplace, right? So I was not getting some of the development opportunities in-house that I wanted. And so then I started looking outside of the company I was working for at the time thinking, all right, well, how can I position myself as a leader in my community and my profession? How can I give back? How can I create a legacy and build a broader network? And so I decided the professional association was the way to do that. And many professional associations want volunteers or they want people to step into certain types of leadership roles. So don't hesitate if you aren't finding leadership opportunities and growth opportunities in your company to take a step outside of your company and look around you, you might find opportunities in other ways to grow yourself, grow your skill set. What gave you the idea to try that? You know, I was dissatisfied in-house. I was looking for something more and I had tried taking classes and certain hobbies and certain things that I enjoyed outside of work. And while that kind of was okay for a while, I was like, you know what, I've got, I had 15 plus years of experience in my profession and I wanted to leave a legacy and develop more people. And I didn't have a team at that point in my career that was very big. And so I was like, you know what, how can I develop other people and teach them what I know? And because I had been going to the association meetings for many years, I reached out to a board member and asked what they liked about being on the board and started building relationships, right? When it came time for them to fill some board seats, they tapped me and said, would you come onto the board? Would you, you know, <laughs> volunteer your time? And so I said, yes. Well, by that point, you had already been speaking with them for a while, right? I had, you know, it really comes down to relationship building and how do you drive awareness of what you are able to deliver by developing relationships. And I think sometimes networking gets a bad rap. People are like, Ugh, I don't want to go to a networking event. All people do is hand a business card and then nothing happens. I think of networking more as making friends. You just go, you make friends, you get to know people. And once you exchange phone numbers or a business card, that's just step one. Step two, three, four is building relationships, sending them articles when you see something that reminds them of them, reaching out periodically and saying, hey, do you want to go on a coffee date or you want to grab lunch together? Or in these times, do you want to do a virtual coffee date and touch base via video call? So I'm very, a very strong advocate for people making friends with other folks and recognizing that that's an incredibly powerful thing to do for your career. And it's also good just socially to broaden your network. You never know when you're going to need that network to find your next job. And this is a perfect opportunity given the coronavirus and how so many of us are at home these days. It's that network that will allow you to grow your net worth. And for people who are getting laid off, if you haven't been networking, they're probably regretting that right now. There's a statistic that shows that up to 80% of jobs are filled these days based on internal candidates filling jobs or somebody on the inside advocating for an external candidate. And so truly the way to find work these days isn't just to apply for openings that you see on companies' websites or that you hear about. It's really about recognizing and getting known by people outside of your company before they even have an opening so that you can apply and they're already thinking of you as a good candidate. 
So you're an HR insider, so you might be able to dispel a myth that's been going around that a lot of those jobs that get posted out there are either already filled or they don't really exist. You know what? They exist typically, but they are oftentimes, yeah, filled. They will oftentimes have either an internal candidate or an external candidate that they already have in mind. So certainly you have to recognize that unless you are using networking strategically, you aren't probably going to have the best shot of getting a job. Now, I will I will caveat that with if that job has been open for 30, 60, 90 plus days and it's a unique position, you can bet they probably don't have a candidate. Right. But if it's only open for three to five days, guess what? They probably had somebody in mind and are, you know, filling it fairly quickly. But if it's been open for a long time, yeah, you've got more of a shot. Reading those job descriptions, sometimes it can feel daunting just looking at all of the requirements that they include in those things. Yes, it can. In fact, I always tell people if you've got 60% of those requirements, apply. If you feel like you can figure it out, apply because they write those job descriptions. Remember, I'm one of those people who would help leaders write job descriptions. They write them for their ideal candidate, right? And ideal candidates don't exist in all situations. So if you know you can do it and you've got a good 60% of it, apply. You don't know who else you're competing with. Customize your resume, customize your cover letter, make sure your LinkedIn profile is powerful. But yeah, put your name in the hat. <laughs> Why is it that they write so so broadly as if nobody could qualify for that job? Yeah, it's looking for a purple squirrel. You know, I think they're hopeful that they'll find the ideal candidate, right? Here's what happens, though, a lot of times behind the scenes that people don't know about. Sometimes they'll write that job description and then they'll start interviewing people and they'll be like, oh, I didn't think about somebody having this type of experience and they could really do a great job in this. Or I didn't think about somebody having so little experience, but I still think they could do the job. So you never know how they're how that job description and their assessment of whether or not that's really what is needed is going to change over time. So again, if you've got good 60%, you know you can figure it out, apply. It's true. Got to remember that hiring managers are just human and they want what they want, but they'll get what they get. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a lot of times they write those job descriptions thinking, you know, truly that they're going to find the unicorn. Well, unicorns don't exist, or at least very few of them do. And yeah, just apply. If you're interested in the job, get yourself known and get yourself out there and, and put your name in by applying and find somebody internally to advocate for you. So it's not just your resume and your cover letter that whoever that recruiter or hiring manager is, is getting an email saying, hey, you just got an application from so-and-so and they're really terrific. I'd love to see them get a strong look as you're considering bringing in people for interviews. Absolutely. Great advice. And one of the things I know I always tell people is that, remember, you're there offering them something that they want. They wouldn't be looking for a candidate if they didn't need something done. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, don't be shy. You started your career straight out of grad school. You went from internship directly into employment, and then you started your career as an employee. And yet now you're no, no longer an employee. You're an independent consultant. I'm interested in that transition and how, how you decided to do that. So I come from a family of a lot of people who are self-employed, but um, was in a situation for much of my life where I was a single mom. My husband had passed away and I was a little scared to make the leap because I don't have a second income in my household. And I got to the point where I was so dissatisfied in my work life in big companies, and I was struggling with doing somebody else's to-do list. And I thought, you know what? If I'm going to make the leap, now's the time. My kids were 
you know, in grade school and middle school. And I thought, you know, I could do this after my kids graduate from high school, or I could do it now. And then I could, you know, have my schedule be such that I can be there for them after school and so forth. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to make the leap. We'll see what happens. And thankfully, I have always been good at networking. And so I had a really strong network. And when I announced to my network and my friends that I had left, I have a strong enough reputation and brand that people hired me. Plus, I have a background also in marketing. So I did that. And I also put myself in some mastermind groups. I also had a nudge, right? So I was working for a large mining company and they told me I was going to get laid off and they gave me six months notice. And so sometimes I think you need a nudge out of the nest. And I was starting to interview in big companies and I just, it didn't make my heart feel good anymore. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to build a website and start crafting what my message is and what my niche is and put myself out there. And here I am three years later. <laughs> Congratulations. That's hard to do sometimes. And that, that nudge can be an important part of that. A lot of people have, they wear the silver handcuffs and they just will never let, they'll never unlink them. Yeah. You know, it's very easy when you get a regular paycheck every couple of weeks to just stay in that zone and you've got it figured out, you know, what you got to do year after year and, and not push yourself. But I wanted to grow professionally and personally. And I was at the point and stage in my life where I thought, you know what, I can take a risk and, you know, worst case scenario, I'll go back into corporate, which I may do someday, but I love what I'm doing right now. And I like the value that I get to create and how I get to react to the marketplace in a way that is, far quicker than what I would have gotten to do had I stayed in the corporate world. So yeah, that's good. Do you think you would have been able to make the transition if you hadn't gotten that nudge? Yes, I think I would have. At one point or another, I think I would have. The part about the nudge that was helpful is I got severance, right? So I had that financial cushion to hold me. So I think there are a lot of people who, after they get laid off, then go straight back into what they were doing before. But I encourage people, when you get a layoff and you get a severance, take a few weeks and think about what do you want to be when you grow up? Maybe it's time to evolve and change. And there are so many tools and resources now as entrepreneurs that help you take a solo practice and make you be able to deliver, maximize your efficiency and your value that you can create in a way that's really powerful. Yeah, it doesn't take that much in terms of startup costs to get started, especially in consulting. And you, you were already building that network and building that speaking career outside of the company while you were still working. Yeah, and I didn't didn't start off building that network and, and speaking and doing things with the idea of that using it in my business, but I had built those habits and those practices and it turned out to be really valuable because when I started my business, I had um, work coming in and had the right connections to, to get off the ground. There's a lot to learn from that. Some people think that the only way to transition from employment to self-employment is like sudden shift and quit that job and walk out of your boss's office and then go and be independent. And no, I, I always encourage people because I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who are scared, right? Fear stops us from doing many things. And they're like, I'm scared. And I always say, well, don't just quit. Do a side gig, you know, <laughs> build the website on the weekend, start building your niche, start getting out there and being visible to the right people. Start figuring out who is your ideal client? What are their pain points? How can you help them? And put yourself in a mastermind group or a group that teaches you how to become an entrepreneur and a small business owner. Figure out and write a business plan. Think about it beforehand and do some planning and then start testing the marketplace to see what people will buy. 
And then as you grow that income stream, and then you can, you know, shift and, and step out of your full time job, but you don't have to go instantly from being an employee or an entrepreneur to being an entrepreneur and running your own business. There's lots of ways to kind of ease into it. I just happened to get a layoff and made the leap. But I was doing a lot of things prior to my actual end date at the company I was working for that were going to help me. No, then that makes sense. And one thing you've mentioned a couple of times now is mastermind groups. And that's a term I think some of my audience is familiar with, but not everybody. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So a mastermind group is a group of individuals that have typically purchased a program from some thought leader to learn something together. And so sometimes mastermind groups are a few weeks, a few months, sometimes they're a year long. And what you're doing is you're learning from the thought leader, whatever you've purchased, and then you are also learning from each other. So I always tell people, you know, figure out what do you need to learn, figure out who are the thought leaders and people who have figured out how to teach others how to do that quickly. And then talk to people who've been through their program to vet it and see if it's worth the money, right? Because some of these masterminds can be tens of thousands of dollars. But I went to one, I think my first one was related to how do you do high ticket selling and how do you do Facebook ads? And then that helped me define my niche and do some of the basics. And then I hired a sales coach and I have had other business coaches that have helped me throughout my time here as an entrepreneur in order to shift my thinking, in order to give me tactics to do things differently. So I've invested in a number of different training programs and, and, and programs that have given me resources and tools. There are lots of them out there. There are, and it's very hard to pick through them sometimes. It is incredibly hard. And so what I would say is find people who have been through the program before you. Find at least three to five people who've been through the program before you and ask them if they thought it was worth it. What was worth it? What wasn't worth it? Because you're never going to find a program that's 100% absolutely wonderful, right? There's going to be components that you're going to need and then components that you're not. And be sure to look at multiple programs and multiple mastermind groups because um, not all of them are created equal. There are some people who will create these and they'll read a few books and then they'll create a mastermind and they become an expert. Find a program where that person uses the methodology they teach in their own business and is representing something that is actually real and not something that's just kind of a book report. That's good advice. And again, that can be sometimes hard to tell because they often offer the opportunity for people to use affiliate links and make money off of promoting their programs. Yeah. And you have to be very clear when you're talking to people about their programs that is this somebody who's actually done the program and is it, have they used it in their business? Just ask good questions. Don't rush into it. I had the benefit of having a friend who had gone through a couple of these mastermind programs and we talked about which ones he'd done and he kind of helped me narrow them down. And then I did my own research and then I kept running into people who'd done, the, done a couple of these mastermind programs and they gave me some good tips and tricks and advice and stuff. And so there are some things that I've invested in that I thought were well worth the money. And then there are other things that I've invested in where I've been like, eh, it was okay, but it wasn't all that and a bag of beans that, you know, it wasn't as good as, as I had hoped. So you learn along the way. But it can take a lot of money. And it's not that expensive to set up a consulting business, as you said, but this is probably one of the major investments. It is. The other thing I did when I started my business, and I would encourage people to do is I interviewed because I knew from doing research that if a small business lasts more than five to 10 years, that's really incredible. And so I interviewed as many consultants who had a good track record, five, 10 plus years, of being successful. And I asked them, what did you learn in the first couple of years of business that you know now that you wish you would have known in those first few years? And I kept, I took notes, right? So I interviewed a ton of people who were successful consultants before I started my business. 
to ramp up my learning curve and to gain insight into their pain points and uh, figure out what I needed to learn. And so that was really helpful too. And this dovetails with your networking because I'm sure those are people you met through that networking. And you, you exactly right, David. That's exactly what happened. I had a lot of people in my network and I was like, okay, can, and I take you to lunch. Can I take you to dinner? Can we sit down and can I just pick your brain and figure out, you know, how did you build your business? How do you find clients? How did you build the momentum so that you could last? It's a bit of a feast and famine cycle, depending on how many income streams you've got and what you're, what you're offering in terms of products and services. So I learned a lot from those discussions. It was really good. And you mentioned also that you hired coaches. I did. And I still hire coaches. So I'm a firm believer in investing in yourself. And I invest in myself each year in some way or capacity. Sometimes it's through a coach. Sometimes it's through a program of some sort so I can gain additional skill sets that then can help me help my clients get better at their performance and get better with their goals and reach their goals more quickly and with higher quality. So yeah, I, I think investing in yourself is an incredibly important thing. I think finding ways to say yes to things that make you uncomfortable is another something. There's a mindset piece that comes with being an entrepreneur that's really critical. If you want to figure out what your personal roadblocks are and grow personally, just start your own business because you have nobody else to blame if you aren't making things work but yourself, right? So it's an incredible opportunity to grow personally. And that applies particularly for people who are running a solopreneur business where they really are working independently. Right. But I would tell you that I supplement with contractors, right? I have a bookkeeper and I have a virtual assistant and I have contractors that I pull in on projects when I can't do the work myself. And so it's not like even when you're a solo entrepreneur, you typically have a team. It's just a matter of thinking creatively about the team and they aren't necessarily your employees. Can you tell me a little bit about how your business is structured these days? Sure. So I, just like I said, I've got a virtual assistant, a bookkeeper, and I have contractors I pull in for different projects. I also look at technology as kind of like my team, right? So I have a calendaring software. I have all sorts of other things that automate processes. I have an email campaign CRM, customer relationship management tool. I have, you know, all sorts of different technology that I use in my business, things to automate tasks and forms and surveys and, you know, all, you know, payment systems, and there's tons of different things. And I learned a lot about those through my mastermind groups that I was in, as well as through talking to other consultants and learning from what other people were doing. You've probably tried a lot of different tools. Is there a set of tools that you've landed on that you're really comfortable with now? Yeah, through trial and error, certainly. You know, I use Schedule Once, Once Hub for calendaring, but I've used Acuity and Calendly too for that. So there's different ones out there. I use Active Campaign for CRM. I use Zapier, I use Bookkeeper, it's QuickBooks. Yeah, there's there's tons, you know, I use Google Drive, I use SharePoint and, you know, different system, different things to share files with clients and do that. There's lots of different things out there. So it's not hard to automate and make things happen with the technology. And some of these things are just a few dollars every month, right? Or it's $100 or $300 a year. It's not that expensive. And you can get incredible value from some of these software that are available now. And what used to be five, 10 years ago, tens of thousands of dollars you can get for very cheap. Zoom, right? People are using Zoom all over the place now. And I've used Zoom for years now. So, yeah. It's true. I think some people economize too much on some of the things where they can save so much of their time if they just invested a tiny bit of money. Yeah. I mean, one of the easiest things I think is a calendaring software. Oh my gosh, you don't need to like go back and forth with somebody and figure out when they're available and you're available on an email. Just give them a link and say, find time on my calendar and book it. It's all good. 
let them figure that out. And you can set up the software to make it, you know, available to have your time be open at certain times that you want to take calls or, or talk to clients. I think the other thing is there's a difference between working in your business and working on your business, right? So working in your business is delivering value to the clients and your customers. But working on your business is doing the marketing and the business development and and doing those components. And so I block different days of the week to do different parts of my business. And you've got to find a balance. That's true. And I think the reason we get into this sort of thing is because we want to be working in our business, not because we want the thrill of building a business. Yes. And and ideally, you get to the point where you've got enough momentum and referrals and things where you don't have to spend so much time on your business. You're delivering great value to clients and you're enjoying that type of work. And it's just an automatic kind of a feed. But the reality is you're going to always have to do some sort of business development marketing. Sure. Have you considered partnering with anybody else in your in your industry? You know, I get asked that a lot because people find out what my skill set and my background is, and especially HR people, because I'm kind of a unique soul in terms of doing the compensation type of work and having that as a specialty. You know, it would have to be the right kind of business and the right kind of partnership. My ultimate goal is to help people perform better in companies and as individuals. And I do that in multiple different ways. And yeah, if there was a, a great partner, I would be more than willing to have the conversation. Now, you mentioned that you're a single mom working with managing this by yourself. I'm really curious, how do you keep track of everything and manage your day and keep it sane in the process? I treat my work day. I, I used to have an office outside of my home. I'm now in my office here in my basement. But I used to have an office outside of my home because I, I wanted to go to work. That worked great until Denver traffic got really busy and I had more and pe- more people wanting to do virtual. And I was like, you know what? Why am I paying for office space if nobody really wants to come here to my office? So I converted a bedroom into an office. So I have a place where I can lock the door and close it. And so I get up in the morning and I work out and I meditate and I eat breakfast and I have a routine that starts my day and shower and get downstairs and go to work. Right. And then I, you know, take the lunch break and go walk the dog and So I have routines and things that I do throughout the day to make my day productive. So I learned early on that it's pretty easy to fiddle away a day. If you want to watch Netflix or who you can fiddle away a day and not get anything done. But that doesn't pay the mortgage and it doesn't pay for groceries. So there's a strong push when you become an entrepreneur to focus on the things that drive value. And that's one of the other things I had somebody who was an entrepreneur tell me you know, you'll get really clear, really fast about what's driving revenue. And you'll do that first. So don't do the busy work because it's very easy when you're in corporate to do busy work because your day can be filled with meetings. And some of those meetings are worthwhile and some of them aren't. But when you're running your own business, the first thing you should do is, okay, what's going to drive revenue today? What's going to drive revenue today? What's going to drive revenue today? What's going to allow me to send an invoice? What's right? And you get those things done and you keep going. It's true. I've spoken to so many entrepreneurs who start their business trying to recreate the structures of a big company in a small company. Don't. No, there's so many broken things in big companies. I'm so grateful. I'm not a big fan of like wasteful meetings. Oh my God, I sat in so many of those crazy things when I was in corporate. And now that I'm in a small business, you know, when I work with my VA and I work with contractors and so forth, we'll have a cadence of meetings when we need it. But we can solve a lot with a quick phone call. But I don't schedule a ton of meetings because that's just a ridiculous use of time much of the time. So, no, I write processes and I do things and hand them off to people and let them. I hire good people. And, and if they have questions, they can call me. But we're off to the races and we're getting work done. Working with a VA can be challenging. And a lot of people who start their own business have trouble delegating. I'm really curious how you manage that. I had the benefit of learning how to delegate when I was in corporate and I had teams, but it is a skill set to learn how to, you have to ask yourself, is this my zone of genius? 
or is it not? So I'll give you an example. I had somebody reach out to me and they wanted to change a meeting earlier this week, but they couldn't because my calendaring system had a block on it that said, if it's within 24 hours of a meeting time start, that person can't change the meeting. And I was like, that's ridiculous. So I sent my VA a note and said, hey, can you fix this in my calendaring system? Yep. And then I needed something else. I needed an agreement, a different type of agreement, automated a sign now or DocuSign, you know, those automated agreement things where you can sign. And so I created the agreement and I could have uploaded it and put it in there and, you know, nope, handed that off to my VA. So my expertise is writing the agreement language, getting that finalized, but I'll let my VA take care of that. So you have to get really good about looking at all the little steps in your business and going, do I need to do that? And, you know, I'll give you an example. When I do speaking events, I have a form. If you want me to speak, fantastic. Let's talk about what you want. Here's a link to a form that you can fill out with all the details, the address, the time, that you know, whatever it is, so that we're all working from the same page in terms of all the details related to it. I don't have to go ask them a ton of questions or remember to ask them things. I just send them a link and say, can you fill this out so that we've got a working document on, on what the details are of the event. So you can automate a lot of things that can uh, speed stuff up. And I bet when that form gets submitted, it gets submitted to your VA. It does. And I have standard templatized language. Like when I do podcasts like this, my VA will often pitch me and what my expertise is to different people who are running podcasts. And so my goal is to have three to four podcasts scheduled every month. And I have my VA look at my email templates and we modify those periodically. And I say, here's the type of audiences that I want in these podcasts so that I can potentially pull clients in and, and talk to people who might want to hire me, or these are people that I think would resonate with my, like my message. And yeah, and so my, my VA does the research. I said, yes, make the pitch that place or not. And then off he sends kind of templatized email language and he gets me booked and he's got access to my calendar and off you go. So you can delegate a ton of different things. You just got to let it go. You don't have to control everything. Tell me a little bit about the process of finding and hiring your VA, because it sounds like waving a magic wand and this is a person who knows how to do everything. I got lucky. I was part of a women's entrepreneurial group here in Denver and the leader of that group had a great VA and she just raved about him. And so I called him and I said, hey, can you work with other people? people. And he goes, yeah, I do. I work with a lot of different people. I'm like, cool. Would you like to work for me? And that was it. But I also, I had started the interview process with other potential candidates and I had a list of questions and I had a list of job responsibilities. What's the job? What do I need help with? What's your background and experience? And I had started an interview process, but once I found my VA, I, I kind of stole him because he was good. And here's the crazy part. He, when I talk to other consultants and so forth in Denver and I'm networking, I can't tell you how many times they're like, let me send you to my VA, Kyle. And I'm like, would that be Kyle such and such? And they're like, yep. And I'm like, ah, I know Kyle. He's my VA too. And he, <laughs> he's just fabulous, right? So there's a lot of us here in the Denver market and elsewhere who use Kyle. So yeah, Kyle's fabulous. That's interesting. VA sharing. So this is not an exclusive relationship, obviously. No, he's got his own business and he works with multiple coaches and consultants in Denver. But I also have an IT technology person, Henry. So I'm always telling people, you know, if you need a great tech person, let me introduce you to Henry because Henry works with a lot of different folks. So I think that's the other thing I've learned from networking is that, you know, you'll start figuring out that it's not six degrees of separation. Many, many communities like Denver, two degrees of separation, and you'll find great people if they're great. So. Who are the thought leaders out there you're following these days? Oh, I follow so many. I like Josh Bernson. He is a kind of a futurist thought leader. I like Seth Godin from marketing. I like Simon Sinek. I like Brene Brown. 
I like Austin Belkak. He's a great like career change kind of a leader. I think he's really good. Are you sharing your ideas in a way that other people could follow them as well? Yeah, very easily. So I make it easy. So if I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn. And so if you go to my website, prosperconsultingllc.com, and you click on connect, you will see all the ways to connect with me, both personally and professionally on Facebook and LinkedIn. Cool. And are you blogging and writing? I am. So on my website, you will see under resources, you'll see blog, you'll see book recommendations, you'll see where I'm at in the media. And I post free resources and stuff for career change and so forth. And I have a Facebook group for people called Know Your Worth and Get Paid For It. And I have another Facebook group for executive women juggling kids and careers. And yeah, so I'm all over the place on LinkedIn and Facebook. But just go to my website, prosperconsultingllc.com. Click on connect and you'll find the social media spots and then click on resources and you'll find my blog posts and so forth. That is fantastic. Well, we'll definitely be including links to those things in our show notes. And Denise, I'm really glad you were able to join me on the show today. Thank you for asking such good questions. Thank you for having such good answers. (laughs) (laughs) Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process. Leave a review for the show on iTunes and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.